connected with you, be able to, to preach, to bring the sermon. And it's always a privilege to know that Jesus is at work and to hear what he's doing. So uh, we're in John's Gospel in our mornings, and Romans in the evenings at the moment, John in the morning. So if you would like to turn to John 7, uh, verse 53, I think the reading's coming up, there you go. I um, do encourage you to find it in your device or your paper version and uh, read with me. Hold it open as we spend the next few minutes together. Remember, Jesus has been at the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, as Phil was preaching last week, spoke about those who are thirsty, those who are hungry, come to to Jesus, living water will well up. And then each went to his own home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. If it was in one of the tabloids, it would be stronger language. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, no one. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. As I read this passage this week and been reflecting on it, I guess the first question I was thinking about was, does it shock us anymore in this day and age? I mean, for Jesus and those religiously kind of inspired countries, you only have to, to kind of notice some of the news reports about the Middle East and, and how women are treated. And, and uh, you know, in Saudi Arabia, just recently, a, a horrific story uh, of 
a similar situation, a man and a woman in adultery. And the man is nowhere to be seen, and the woman is sentenced to being lashed. And her lawyer appeals, and because the lawyer appeals, she gets lashed even more. I mean, those places, yeah. Britain today, adultery, come on, Jesus. Does the passage shock us? I guess it should. Many here, and undoubtedly we know of people, family members, colleagues at work, friends, Marriage breaks down because one person is unfaithful. It wrecks, tears apart. It hurts. In our day, in this age of of sexual revolution, we as Christians, for those who choose to follow Jesus, we have to come to terms with a society where the pressure towards promiscuity is subtle, but it's unrelenting. I guess there wouldn't be a crowd to stone now. The second question you may have noticed as you read it, there's little letters, little words around this passage. Have you noticed that in the scriptures? It wasn't on the screen. If you've been good enough to have got your, your Bibles with you, you'll notice there's a little kind of um, little note, a little line that gets put in some of the, the passage. It says that this this passage isn't included in some of the earliest manuscripts of John. I just want to deal with that very quickly and say I believe it to be scriptural. There is an issue about whether it was here in the original, but I'm, I'm convinced that these are the words, the story, and account of what Jesus uh, did and encountered this woman. And I'm convinced that this story is true scripturally, and I'm very happy for it to be in this place. Because the very next verse uh, that we get to, though the flow of the passage from uh, 52 to 8, 12, would kind of flow very nicely. There's something uh, very profound about this passage. I, I didn't read it, but I'll read it now. No one, sir, she said, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Next verse. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I think it's really important in how we understand this passage of Jesus and this woman in the context of those who gathered with their stones, with their arguments, with their justification, with their sense of to do what is right, to uphold moral values, And make sure society doesn't come crashing down. See, Jesus is sitting in the temple. The temple where the law, the Ten Commandments, were were very much in evidence. They would read it. The the, the law was in the ark. It was before the, uh, in the Holy of Holies, this, this founding document, the constitution of God's people. It was there. This is what made them God's people. But this little story in the temple courts also reminds us that not only is the law there, but it sits with the mercy seat 
in the temple where God's presence dwells, the place where truth and justice and mercy meet. And Jesus enacts it. And Jesus very quickly at the end says, I'm the light of the world. If you live in me, you will never walk in darkness. Because we see that there are two kind of main groups. There's the woman and the, the religious people, the Pharisees and the scribes. And we see that they're both living in darkness. One, the darkness of personal choice. One, the darkness of kind of sinful living, of choices that are wrecking her life and her, the lives of those around them. But also the religious walking in darkness because they don't understand where the law points to light. So this story begins with a group of men wanting to stone this woman and ends up with them wanting to stone Jesus. It's a story of adultery and hypocrisy. It's a grisly affair, darkness surrounding true light. You see, the Pharisees have, have gathered and they've laid a trap. They've laid a trap. They've, they've found this, uh, this woman. She's caught in adultery. She may be a prostitute. It's not told. She may be someone who's been caught in this illicit relationship. But it's likely that they've, they've kind of got enough evidence to bring her to the temple. And they kind of Come to Jesus in order to trap him. You see, we've, we've heard again and again, Jesus has been out and about, and, and he's got this reputation for hanging out with, with the sinners, for hanging out with those who are transgressing, who, are, who aren't living the way that the kind of Pharisees expected and wanted everyone to live. They weren't living the good, upright, daily male life. They hated Israel, apparently, these people. And the Pharisees were those pillars of society who said, no, it can't be this way. We've got to restore good old Israel. It's really, really important. And Jesus was this slippery character for them because they couldn't nail him down to, well, not yet anyway. They couldn't grasp him and kind of get a hold on him so that they could either decide he's of God or not because he seemed to be of God. He did amazing things that only God could do, but he kept on he kept on just hanging out with the people you wouldn't invite home to mum. And they think they've got him this time. Because here's a cut and dried case. Here's a woman caught in adultery. Deuteronomy 22, 22. Plain to see. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Come on, Jesus. What are you going to do with this one? No wriggle room. It's a trap. What's Jesus going to do? On the one hand, he could say, well, no, it doesn't matter. And they say, ah, I got you. You see, you don't you don't believe in the law. You, you, you're not following the laws of Moses. How can you claim to be of God when you so recklessly kind of cast aside all that we hold dear and to be precious? And they could reject him. Or well, the other side of the snare. 
What are you going to do, Jesus? Hoping that maybe he'd say, yeah, okay, well, pass the rock back. She deserves it. It's a clever trap. What will Jesus do? And hanging in the balance is this woman. We don't know her name. She doesn't have a minor problem. Her life is in jeopardy. She broke the law. The witnesses have her. Incidentally, it's just worthwhile noting, where's the man? Remember Deuteronomy says, both the man and the woman. Where's the man? It's one of the sad states of affair in our world, and maybe still true in Britain, that Women are always treated a little bit more harshly, particularly in terms of sex. You know, sometimes young, young guys, teenagers, well, they're just going and, you know, they're just being, boys will be boys, you know, they're just exploring what it means to be a man, sowing their wild oats kind of phrases. You know those phrases? You talk about a teenage girl or a young, a young woman, it's not the phrases that are used, are they? She's described as loose, or she's acting in a slutty way. Interesting how even still, we view men and women differently. I thank God that Jesus doesn't. I thank God that Jesus shows us a different way. I thank God that there's still the power of the kingdom to affect deep, entrenched views in us about race, or about gender, or about sexism, or about class. The power of Jesus has to confront these things. Ask yourself, how did you react to the Daily Mail this week? Just to give you a glimpse of maybe how much the kingdom still has to come in us. Jesus answers in the midst of this trap in a wonderful way. He doesn't deny the law of Moses, but he reminds them of their own hypocrisy. He points out in the most powerful way, that way of self-realization. The penny drops for them. He's not told them. They work it out. They should be on the other side. They should be the ones facing the stoning mob. Jesus doesn't contradict the law of Moses. In fact, he upholds it and upholds it fully. But the outcome is that the woman is forgiven. She's rescued from imminent death. A recipient of grace and forgiveness and told, live in this now. But the trap is set. Jesus, what are you going to do? He bends down and he starts to draw in the sand. Lots of people have lots of ideas of what he might be doing. Some say he's biding his time. Could well be true. He realizes this is a difficult one. Other people kind of reckon maybe he's 
He's drawing, maybe sometimes people say he's drawing a line in the sand to say this is a sign of what the kingdom is about. Other people kind of reckon maybe he was writing some words, maybe reference to uh, some scripture, maybe he was... um, wrote the word hypocrisy or maybe wrote some other sins or maybe he he wrote something of the Ten Commandments or maybe he was doodling. We don't know. But they kind of say, come on, Jesus. And he stands up and addresses them and says, you know, you who are without sin cast the first stone. Brilliant. Brilliant. And bends down and One by one, that mob, that crowd, righteous, indignant, slip away. The oldest first. Colossians 2 talks about Jesus and says, In whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What a great wise moment where Jesus in the jaw of this trap, this very cleverly devised, powerful trap, finds a third way. The accusers walk away one by one. Jesus does not treat sin lightly. That's not the outcome of this story. He's not saying at the end, well, it doesn't really matter what we do, love is all about, well, love is all about. But Jesus has those strong words, go and sin no more. I loved when Sandy Miller was here for our summer conference, he preached on that at one point. He said, he said um, this is really, really important. He said, go and sin no more. And he said that actually God, in doing that, gives her the option, the opportunity to say, you do not need to live this way anymore. And he gives the power to us not to live like this anymore. It must be possible for this woman to go and to choose a new course, a new direction where she will live the life she was intended to live. Isn't that great? Sin isn't diminished. Actually, the consequences of sin are kind of clear. She deserved to die. But in the mercy and favor and goodness and grace of Jesus, she is given a fresh start and encouragement and the power to live differently. This is a gospel message. This is what it is to be followers of Jesus, to be told you are now set free, you are now no longer condemned to death. You are now no longer facing kind of the consequence of your stupid decisions, of reckless decisions, of decisions that you wish you could undo. Jesus says, now you're set free to live the way you're intended. But for those in darkness who had the stones, who dropped them, I came across this phrase, Christ's forgiveness in each of our lives diminishes as we lose touch with the depth of our own sinfulness. I'll read that again because it's 
Just think about it. Christ's forgiveness in each of our lives diminishes as we lose touch with the depth of our own sinfulness. We're coming to the table for communion in a minute. You know, those extravagant moments in the gospel where, where people are just like this woman who is, who'd committed adultery or, or those who are really sinful. Matthew, the tax collector, Zacchaeus, so many of them. Kind of Jesus, they encountered Jesus and they recognized that they were really sick and their abundance of thankfulness. Mary Magdalene breaking that perfume bottle and wiping his feet with her tears. And people look on and kind of go, don't you know what she's doing, who she is? And Jesus says, this is a great thing she's doing because she understands how much she's forgiven. She understands how amazing it is for God to be amongst them. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who heals, who restores, who sets free. Such is the gratitude and the overwhelming thanksgiving. But the challenge for those who've walked, those of us who've walked for a number of years and become churched and become nice Christians is that we forget. And that abundant worship, that abundant thankfulness, that heartfelt exclamation of Jesus, thank you, diminishes when we think we're all right. I'm good. There's a lot worse than me. When we no longer see ourselves in the drama of this woman, when we feel that we're free from the accusation and judgment, we lose sight of God's grace. Jesus looked at the woman and said, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she replied. Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. We've read this story many times. But we see in it compassion, empathy, and hope. As I was thinking about this, there's, there's only three kind of characters in the story. There's Jesus, there's the woman and the crowds. Who are you associating with most closely? In this story this morning, where are you? Because God says we are somewhere. We'd like to think we're Jesus. That's where we always figure ourselves. And maybe that is true. Maybe actually you're the person, the person who is the means of grace this very morning to the person sitting next to you, to your partner who's made an indiscretion, to the work colleague who everyone else is victimizing because of some error and some decision, to your child who's blown it. Maybe you're the Jesus character this morning in offering the grace and mercy, the hand reached out to say, I don't condemn you. You have every right to. Of course you have. They've overstepped the law. The law's really clear. We, not only the law of this land, but of Scripture, we know what we shouldn't do. Very much so in this, in this area of, of sexual promiscuity. 
You've looked at that internet site again, and naked people. You're pursuing that kind of illicit affair, that, that person at work that excites you, and you know it's not right because it's going to damage the committed relationship, but there's something about it. You know what it might be. Maybe you're in the position of the woman. And thankfully, you're not dragged to the front of the church and told, hey, this person, do you know what they've done? But inside, there's that, gosh, I'm so glad. Or you're just kind of avoiding that tweak of the conscience trying to put yourself in the religious minority, the right, right. But you know, you know in your heart, oh gosh, if they knew. Or maybe there's those amongst us who are the religious group. The holier than thou, the righteous. The one that if someone's broken, they'd never turn to you and say, would you pray for me? Because they think, I'm just going to get an earful. I'm just going to get the finger pointed. I'm just going to be told, I don't need that. This story is a gospel story. See, the evil in others arouses a righteous anger in ourselves, and we kind of don the robes of, of the, you know, the judge, and we pound our gavels. We look at people and make judgments without ever hearing their story. Think there's no hope. We know the pecking order. Those who are at the bottom. thinking, you know, in Alpha and places, could that person really be saved? Would God's love really stretch to the serial killer or the terrorist or the pedophile or the human trafficker or the rapist? Would really God save them? We're looking down, obviously. We're making ourselves in a better place. How easily we do it. You see, if, if justice must be served, we're all in trouble, says this story, because all have sinned. Maybe we haven't ordered the death of thousands. Maybe we haven't raped anybody. Maybe we haven't killed anyone, but we're still sinners. We've rebelled against God. We've broken the law. But this story says the fact that Jesus is a friend of sinners is good news. Maybe the sin isn't obvious, but they're just as real. Here are four stages that people live in. Where are you? Stage one says, I'm a good person. 
and I'm justified in criticizing bad people. Do you know that sort of person? Stage two that God moves us through, I believe, is, is I'm a good person, but I should show compassion to bad people. We can see maybe something of that in ourselves. But God moves us further. Stage three, I'm a sinner who needs just as much help as that person there. The fourth stage says, I'm loved by Jesus just as I am, and so is everyone else. If Jesus could say just one thing to you right now, what would it be? In the light of all that I've shared, in the light of your current circumstance, if Jesus could say just one thing to you, what would it be? What comes up in your mind? Think of it. And think of the tone that it might be said in. You see, in my experience, most people expect a correction or rebuke from Jesus. How was it for yourself? We think that if Jesus had only one shot at fixing it, he'd make it, uh, he'd make it count by pointing out where we'd blown it the worst. You've got to stop losing your temper with your children, or come on, try harder, work harder, buck up and be strong, stop whinging. Well, you've blown it in this way again. What were you thinking? Get your life together. Come on. Was it something like that? If I think Jesus had one moment, he'd tell us how much he loves us. I love you. See, that's what Zacchaeus experienced. Matthew and the woman caught in adultery and countless others. That Jesus loves us right now, just as we are. He isn't standing aloof, yelling at us to climb into our pits and clean ourselves up so that we can be worthy of him. He's wading waist deep into the muck of life, weeping with the broken, rescuing the lost, and healing the sick. Of course, you know, this story reminds us that sin is dreadful, that sin hurts and it hurts others. But the Bible is clear. Grace comes close. No sinner is irreparable or irredeemable. That's why we're invited here. That's why in the, the Last Supper, there were 12 disciples with him. I won't ask you to name them all because we forget the ones who have strange names. But don't forget, Judas was there, the one who would betray and was stealing from the common purse and had planned in his heart. Grace comes amongst us. No sin is so great that the blood of Jesus cannot cover over it. His love is so deep and wide that he can in one moment of faith forgive the past and the present and our future. Hallelujah. And it's here in a morning like this with a bunch of people like us to remember the love of Jesus and to encourage each other in it. Are you this morning one of those broken people? Maybe you just wondered whether to come here this morning because you thought, why am I being such a hypocrite? You're welcome. Everyone's looking nice and presentable, but... The privileges of ministry is you get to know people and you know that 
people are people. But I tell you that believers here know the grace of God because he's rescued us from situations that you would kind of think, really, those people? They look so nice and their hair's so smart. And they're so middle class and good people. Well, the good news is we're not. We're broken recipients of grace. If you need the goodness of God because your life is going down the pan, you're in a set of behaviors or a circumstance, and it might very well be an adulterous relationship or an affair or something that's to do with promiscuity or pornography, Jesus sets us free. And he first does it by forgiving. Go and sin no more. Come to the table, you're welcome. That famous prayer, not because we're strong, but because we're weak. Not because we deserve to, but because we know we must. Here, the people in the church, when we realize, when we get together, that we love Jesus and we seek to encourage each other, something happens, we start to change. God transforms us in one area at a time. We hardly know how it happens. But we know as we look around, week by week, month by month, we realize that the marriage has begun to work. That we've begun to like our children again, and they like us back. We're becoming nicer people to be around. We don't get angry like we used to. We've become more generous and more open. You know, we can't take credit for that transformation. It's not that we're just working hard at it. But we're saying, Jesus, fill us with your spirit. Have your way. Jesus looked at the woman and said, go and sin no more. It wasn't a threat. It wasn't like, go and sin no more. I'll track you down. I know where you are. It was a declaration of freedom. He wasn't interested in condemning her past. He wanted to rescue her future. Go and sin no more. Comes from the place of Jesus saying, neither do I condemn you costliest sentence ever uttered. Your blood is spared because mine is shed. That this amazing passage is comforting and frightening. No sin we can commit puts us beyond the reach of God, his love or his forgiveness. Frightening because we might think we're too good to need love and forgiveness ourselves. Who are you in the story? What might Jesus say to you today? There's an invitation now to confess your sin and receive forgiveness again. And the reminder and the empowerment, go now and leave your life of sin. Live his ways. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray.
Let's stand together. Thank you, Lord, that you, you love us so, so much. And I thank you for the grace and the love that's exhibited here. And to those, to those who need it particularly, Hear the word of Jesus, neither do I condemn you. Thank you, Lord, that this is a place of welcome, a place where all are welcome, no matter the baggage or the history, no matter the story. I thank you that this has been reflected again and again when people have come and said their life is at an end. It just seems that everything is falling about them or there's been a mistake and I regret it. But people aren't turned away. That we draw alongside. And you've given us the ability, thank you Lord, to learn from you, to say we don't condemn you. But I thank you for the gospel that's the power of God for salvation. Not just to rescue us, but to, to give us new life. And we've seen amongst us addictions broken. And just choices and lifestyles that have, have, would consume and constrict and lock and hinder have been broken off. And people have become new people. New trans, uh, transformed, born again, new birth. To those amongst us, and you're going back to a situation where you think, gosh, this is hard. I don't know how to be like Jesus. I pray wisdom now. That you would ask of the Lord as you share in this bread and this wine. Because of the very real situation, it may be a parenting thing or a relational thing or a work thing. And it's like there's a trap of like, how do I stay true to Jesus how do I act in a Jesus-like way when I don't know what to do? He does. Give wisdom now. And if none of this is, none of this is connecting because you think, well, I'm okay, brilliant. Thank you for the grace of God in your life. And I urge you to pray. Pray for our children and young people. 
Researchers said that 12-year-olds are seeing so much on the internet that it's forming their belief about relationships and sex and about self-esteem and their identity. It's consuming a generation. Just in the last six months, I've talked with a number of young people whose lives are being inhibited and, and caught up into addictions like this. We pray the power of God would set people free. But right now, as we worship, our deep Father's love for us, not just passive love, but active, powerful, radical, reshaping love that defines the whole new era of the kingdom coming. Give him 